Well, the the coffee topic comes up, and then everything kind of goes in that direction, and I become the coffee guy. But that's okay, I suppose. I've been accused of worse. Uh, I I do collect for all the all of you that may be skeptics out there. Uh, I I have a small collection of articles that report on medical studies that show that coffee is good for you. So, in case you're um, having any doubts at all, you come see me or send me an email, and I'll send you some links. Um, uh, the, I, I've, the, the video was taken well, is not where it used to be online and I've got to find it again but I do actually have a clip of a, um, a, a, a neurologist from the Mayo Clinic who actually says the words okay, unless you're having one of the three major um, side effects okay, which you would know unless you're having one of those side effects the more caffeine, the better. He actually said that. So, if there are any college students or grad students in your midst, or just you know people that uh, feel like they need that morning cup, it's okay. The doctor said so. <clears throat> well, it's good to see you again this week. Um, the, we we all got an hour less of sleep last night. I'm sure nobody went to bed early last night, anticipating missing an hour. Um, that's just not how we roll generally. But it, I'm, I'm uh, blessed that you came this morning in spite of having to get up what felt like an hour earlier. This morning, we're going to, to do uh, something uh, you'll see in your bulletin. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 3 this morning. Um, last week, we, we looked at the, the story of Exodus 33 and 34, and we saw God's self-revelation in a moment of... Um, of great distress and fear and even sinfulness. We saw God revealing his mercy and attesting to his compassion and his faithfulness and his righteousness. We saw how, how that formed the basis of, of his covenant with Israel and how uh, it, in fact, forms the basis of the gospel itself as we see those uh, qualities manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. So this week, I... I I don't know that there's really much of a plan here, um, but as the Lord often does, he, he is timely in the way that he cares for his people. And because you are in the midst of a pastoral search, and because I am particularly interested in this text for other reasons that I'll tell you about, um, I think that the Lord has something to, to say, to minister to this assembly today, specifically with regard to your search for a new pastor. Uh, because what we're going to see in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, and we're just looking at that, essentially that one verse today, is we're going to see a summary uh, of, of Christian identity. What do I mean by Christian identity? Another way to say this is the, the, the th- three marks of a true Christian for this particular context. There are a number of places in Paul's letters where he, he gives a definition what, what we might call a definition, or, or gives kind of a, a summary of what it means to follow Christ. This is one of those cases. And it comes, obviously, into the specific context of uh, the, the Philippian church and what was going on in the city there and in, the, in the, the assembly of the saints in Philippi. 
but because it's so definitive, we have, we have much to learn. Uh, I've looked at this text, I've preached from this text uh, uh, previously, and often when I'm talking in this text, my, my emphasis is on the worship of the church because that's a heavy emphasis in the text. And because worship is, is a particular interest of mine as well, uh, I've come to see how this, the, the three marks of Christian identity that we see here in, in Philippians 3 are in fact definitive for the worship of the church. The, the worship of uh, the, the saints when they gather on a Sunday morning as well as the worship of God that, that should be taking place in our individual lives. We'll, we'll talk about that in here. Uh, but as I was pondering this uh, early this morning, I also thought what a fitting text it is for uh, a body of believers who is looking for their next pastor, for you and your elders to consider these central marks of Christian identity as you're looking for someone to come and lead you as a shepherd. These These are the things you should be looking for in a shepherd. These are the qualities that you should be looking for in someone to to lead you, to shepherd you, and, and to, uh, to, to bring you along in manifesting this identity. And so I'm, I'm praying that the Spirit of God will, um, will minister the, the meaning of this text, the intent of this text, not just for, for our individual lives, being blessed as God's people, following him faithfully, living out Christian identity in our individual lives, and not just living it out as we gather together on a Sunday in our gathered worship, but also uh, in your particular case as you're searching for your next leader. The fact is that we act in, according to, in accordance with our identity, right? We each have a variety of identities. For instance, I, am, I have the identity of a husband. My lovely wife came with me today. She took pity on me uh, for the long drive um, plus, I discovered that we know the Kangs. We didn't know the Kangs were here, but Brian and Jen, we went to Israel with them uh, five years, almost six years ago now, uh, on the TMS Israel trip. And Brian came up and said hi last week, and so she came down so we could catch up a little bit. Um, but I'm a husband, and that carries with it a certain, a certain identity, doesn't it? I'm identified with my wife, Pam. As a matter of fact, for most of our almost 25 years of marriage... A lot of people think of me as Pam's husband. Um, and, and frankly, I like that because I married up pretty seriously. I married well over my head. And so for people to identify me with her kind of makes me look a little better, honestly. <laughs> so that's an identity that I carry. Okay? In addition to that, I'm a father. So I am Emily, Kendall, and Abby's dad. And that carries with it a certain identity. And there have been times in life when it's been a heavy burden. It's like, oh, you're that kid's dad, huh? Uh, I am a professor. We're all defined by our occupation in some ways. So uh, when people uh, hear, I try, I try not to let people call me doctor or anything uh, because I just remember my brothers, and I have two brothers, and their, their reaction when I finished my doctorate, and they were laughing at me like, Dr. Snyder, really? Um, but because that, that, that identity as a professor carries with it certain marks that people expect, sometimes rightly and sometimes not so much. 
So what are the marks of identity of a Christian? As a Christian man, as a Christian woman, as an assembly of Christians, what are the marks that we bear that we're intended to live out? Well, that's what this text is about. So turn to Philippians 3 if you're not there yet. In Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to read uh, verses 2 and 3 to get us started, and then we're going to go a variety of places. Um, And in this text, verse 3, we're going to see three identity markers of the true people of God. Paul begins, now, for those of you that have studied Philippians before, you know that Philippians is often referred to as the epistle of joy. Or people talk about, you know, the theme of rejoicing in Philippians. There's a lot of good stuff going on in the church at Philippi. And the first two chapters are really very joyful. They're full of joy and hope. And uh, so it's a bit of a jolt when we get to the beginning of chapter 3. And Paul says this. Look at verse 2. Paul's been talking about joy and hope and thankfulness and humility and so forth. And then suddenly he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Or I would rather say, look out for the mutilators. For we are the circumcision, those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now we have to set the context here briefly before we get to these three identity markers, which are very conveniently listed there for us by Paul. Worship in the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. But why does he come to this point? Why does he say this? This is, this is pretty stark, harsh language. And you notice the repetition in there. Beware. It says, look out. I'm reading the ESV here. I'm not sure what translation you have, but it'll say something like beware or look out. Look out. For the dogs, look out for the evil workers, look out for the mutilators. What is he talking about? He's concerned about something. That beware is a, um, an attention grabber, and, it's intent- and, and he repeats it uh, three times. So he's trying to grab their attention suddenly. All is not completely well in Philippi. Well, if you read Paul's letters, you can see that during his lifetime, during his ministry, there were people who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ who were Jewish and were were, uh, devout followers of the, uh, the, the Mosaic Covenant, the worship system of the Old Testament. And so they wanted to combine the two. They would say, Jesus has come and you need to believe in him, but you also need to be circumcised and keep the law. Because that's always been the mark of the people who are the, the, the people of the true God. You are circumcised and you follow the law. So you believe in Jesus Christ because he's the Messiah and he's come. But in addition to that, you have to um, conform to the laws that the Jewish people follow and always have. Well, that, that was uh, a corruption of the gospel, wasn't it? Because that, the, what it does was it, it essentially added works to belief in Jesus Christ. It was a corruption of what God was doing in Jesus Christ by bringing Jew and Gentile together and giving them a common bond in Jesus the Messiah. Ephesians is all about that. God building his new creation, his new family, his new society 
this new nation of people, of followers, that were not just along one ethnic line and certainly not rooted simply in the law of Moses. But by faith, in the, his people were now united by faith in Jesus Christ, and it didn't matter whether they were Jew or Gentile. But these, the, we call them the Judaizers, would come in after someone would preach the true gospel, and they would say, okay, now we're here to tell you the rest of the story. You need to, believe, you need to follow the works of the law as well. And you need, and often, following the law would be summarized as circumcision because that was the mark of Israel, wasn't it? That was the mark of the covenant of God with Abraham that, that then flowed through in the, the, the covenant that Israel had through Moses. So he says in verse 3, we are the circumcision, meaning the true people of God. And look at what he calls the, the Judaizers, the dogs, the evildoers, the mutilators. In Greek, it's a wordplay, mutilator and circumcision. It doesn't work in English, but in Greek, they sound very much the same. Paul is saying those who are coming in and preaching this false gospel are mutilating not just bodies. They are mutilating the gospel. You need to watch out for them, beware of them, and guard against them. So, you see why, it's in, why these three marks of identity are important. He's not just teaching them a class in systematic theology. He's not teaching them, uh, you know, just sort of teaching them a, a, a book of doctrine. He's saying, these people are coming in and saying, this is what true believers do. And I'm here to tell you that that's not the case. Here is what true believers look like. They worship in the Spirit of God. They boast only in Jesus Christ, and they put no confidence in the flesh probably referring back to the mutilators who were concerned about your flesh. So these three marks of identity are not just casual uh, observances for Paul. They're not just something he made up. They're not just a convenient list. It's vital that we see that in contrast to the false gospel, in contrast to those who would add to faith in Jesus Christ, these are the marks of God's true covenant people. We have a unique identity. Paul says we are the true circumcision. By that he simply means we're the true people of God. The other, the Judaizers came through and said, and and would identify themselves as the circumcision. Paul says they're not the circumcision, they're the mutilation. So, he says in contrast to that, We are the circumcision. And I just want to point out before I go any further. Very clear in the background of Paul's thinking here as he moves toward giving us this list of the three identity markers. Very clear in his thinking is the idea that there is a contrast between those who are not the people of God and those who are. Now this is not some, this is not something that exalts me or us as true Christians. But, but simply the statement that there is, there is a clear difference between the world and God's people. And you have to recognize that. That difference is defined by the gospel, and it's defined along the lines that we're about to see. It's very popular. I think of this as I think about you, you and your pastoral search. It's very popular in the church these days to 
to want to gather people in and just sort of smudge over Christian identity and say, you're welcome here, and you should be, but we don't want to make any, you know, any big, clear, harsh statements about who's in and who's out. We just want to love people. Beware of that kind of thinking because you see the mixture of both truth and error that's in there. Of course, we want anyone who walks in these doors in this building to feel welcome. We want them to see the love of God that has come into our hearts through Jesus Christ that then overflows from us to everyone around us. We want them to experience that. We want them to come to see the gospel in action and to encounter what it's really like to follow Jesus Christ. Of course, we want to love people and we want them to be welcome. But there's a difference. There is an eternal difference between the people of God and those who are not. And in part, that defines our mission, doesn't it? Our mission is to call those people into the body of Christ, the nation of, you know, the the, the kingdom of priests that are the true people of God, the way Peter describes us. Our mission is to call them in through the gospel. And we can only do that if we maintain the distinction between the true people of God and those who are not. So, anyway, Paul says there is a distinction between the true people of God and those who are not the true people of God. And anyone who would corrupt the gospel must be be rejected. You must watch out for them. And then he goes on. He's not going to leave it in doubt for them uh, what the true people of God are like. We are the circumcision. Well, what, what are those people like, Paul? He gives us three markers of identity. The first one is the ones who worship in the Spirit of God. Your translation may say, by the Spirit of God. And I'm not making a huge uh, distinction between the two. It's the same Greek word, and it, it very often means, probably most often, means in. And I think that's a slightly better translation. We, the, the, the true people of God are the ones who worship in the Spirit of God. Now, let's unpack this uh, just a little bit. First of all, notice what Paul says first. When he wants to talk about what identifies the true people of God, he mentions worship first. He doesn't say, we are the true circumcision who believe in Jesus Christ, who proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, who gather together and uh, whatever, have potlucks. The first marker of identity that comes to Paul's mind by the leading power of the Holy Spirit, because he's writing scripture, is worship. The first identity marker that Paul thinks of when he wants to to clearly draw the line between the mutilators and the true people of God is worship. We are the ones who worship in the Spirit of God. And I really think that this is... uh, uh, pattern setting. This sets a pattern in this, in this text. I think worship overshadows this text. The first thing that Paul talks about is worship. Now, what does he mean? Your translation may say serve. We are the ones who serve 
by the Spirit of God or in the Spirit of God. And it's very interesting because the word there means serve. But it's not the kind of service that a master gives to a slave. Uh, Sorry, that a slave gives to a master. (laughs) That's daylight savings time talking there. Um, I'll blame it on something else next week. Um, It's not the kind of service that a slave gives to a master. That's a different word. This is the kind of... um, service that a priest gives to a deity. So whether it's the true God or a false God or whatever, this is a Greek word that means the service that a priest gives to a God. And if you look at the, uh, the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament from a couple hundred years before Christ, uh, where the same kind of Greek is used to translate the Old Testament, it uses this word of ser- service worship, service slash worship, to refer to worship of the true God in the Old Testament. So the word here is serve, but with the meaning of worship. This is what defines us. We are servant worshipers. We're servant worshipers. Now let's um, see if we can chase what this means uh, around the New Testament a little bit. It means serve, but always in the sense of worship. In the New Testament... This word is never used to speak of service rendered to another human, but it's used in contexts like Romans 1.9, where Paul it uses it really as an aside. He speaks of God, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Or similarly, in 2 Timothy 1, early on, this is in the greeting of the epistle, he says, God, he refers to God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. Um, he, he portrays this kind of service as a characteristic of his whole life. He refers to himself as one who serves God through the gospel. We see it in, a false, in the sense of false worship in Romans one twenty five. When Paul says, Paul speaks of unbelievers who worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And we could translate that, instead of worshipped and served, we could translate it as feared and worshipped. Unbelievers, uh, pagans, in the old days, uh, they feared and served, or worshipped, feared and worshipped the creature rather than the creator. That word for worship there, or serve, is the word that he's using here in Philippians 3.3. So there is a a reverence about it as well. So serving God in this sense involves a commitment of the heart. It's not a matter, I mentioned priests, um, but it's not a matter of ritual. It's not a matter of following procedures and manipulating a God into doing what you want him to do. Not at all. We see it through through, uh, Romans 1 and 2 Timothy 1. We see it as a way of life. And we see this most clearly in Romans 12.1, which most of you probably could quote if I asked you to. Turn to Romans chapter 1 real quick. Romans 12. Romans 12 verse 1. Romans 12 verse 1. Paul is in a transition here uh, from talking about the great salvation that God has, has offered through Jesus Christ. And now he's going to apply this to their lives individually and and corporately. And so in in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Who offered sacrifices? The priest. It was a priestly act of worship. 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable worship. The word for worship there is just the noun form of the same word that he's using in Philippians 3. Giving up your whole life as a sacrifice to God is your reasonable act of worship. We are those who worship in the spirit of God. He's communicating essentially the same thing here in Philippians 3.3 3, that, he's, that he's saying in, in Romans 12.1. Christians are those who have given up their lives to service to the true God, to serve him, to worship him. So it's not a matter of simply what, <coughs> excuse me, what we do when we gather here on a Sunday. It's a matter of what we do every single day. Worship in the New Testament, if you follow the, the, the themes related to worship in the New Testament, it's so clear that in contrast to the Old Testament, that worship is almost entirely a, a, a diffused matter in the New Testament. It happens all throughout your life. Well, what about Sunday? What about when we all get together? The Sunday gathering is a gathering of worshipers who have come together to combine their worship in a very special moment in time that we get to share together every week. At least that's what it's supposed to be. So worship, especially in the New Testament, but really through all Scripture, is a matter of giving up myself to God. Paul says that the first mark of identity for true believers is that that they're the ones who worship in the Spirit of God. Now, We haven't talked about that phrase, in the Spirit of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to worship in the Spirit? It sounds kind of like what Jesus said to the woman at the well, doesn't it, in John 4, that God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must, must worship in Spirit and truth. So maybe He's saying the same thing here. I think it's a little different in, this, in, in Philippians 3. What does it mean to worship in the Spirit of God? Well, in the Spirit is an idea that Paul uses a number of times in his letters also. So if we want to know what he means here, it would help us if we would survey quickly the other passages that he, that he, uh, where he uses this, this phrase. In a sense, based on Romans 8, we could say that everything we do as Christians is to be done in the Spirit because we are now spiritual people and not uh, fleshly people. He uses, he uses a word that we often translate in the spirit. We walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. We live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. Why? Because the spirit is living in us, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 through 11. So in a sense, that, that idea of being in the spirit encompasses everything that we do. But Paul uses it in a few more specific cases. For instance, because we're here in in Philippians 3, you can turn probably one page to the right to Colossians 1, and there we see an example in Colossians 1 verse 8. Paul's talking about Epaphras, who has come to him and given him a report about uh, what's going on in the the churches at Colossae. And he says, he, Epaphras, is a faithful minister of Christ or servant of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Your love in the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? Apparently, the Spirit, and Paul says this as well in Romans, the Spirit has poured out, or God has poured out His love in our hearts 
through the spirit that he's given to us, has put in us. So Paul says he commends the Colossians because he's been told about their love in the spirit. They are showing that love to one another. They're characterized by that love in the spirit. In Ephesians 6, from Philippians 3, you can go now go to the left one page. In Ephesians 6, where Paul uh, lists out the, the armor of God and he exhorts us to put on the armor of God and head into battle. In verse 18, after the list of armor, he says, he gives sort of a, a, an umbrella statement. You put on the armor of God, verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Praying in the spirit? Is that that idea where you, you know, you sort of babble in, a, in an unknown language, praying in the spirit? I don't think so. You are praying according to the Spirit. You are praying because the Spirit lives in you. You are praying based on the fact that you've just put on the whole armor of God in order to go into battle. You pray in dependence on the Spirit. Romans 8 bears that out, doesn't it? When we don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. So the the Holy Spirit is involved in our in our prayers, we pray in the Spirit with that sense of dependence on God. We could look at 1 Corinthians 12, 3, where Paul implies that people speak in the Spirit, meaning they speak the truth. When they speak in the Spirit, they're speaking the truth. They're telling the truth. And that's a Spirit-motivated thing. So when Paul uses this idea of doing something in the Spirit... If we could summarize it, especially here for Philippians 3.3, he seems to be emphasizing our dependence on the Spirit. We know that God's Spirit dwells in us and among us, and so we follow Christ trusting in his Spirit to lead us, to fill us, to bear his fruit in us. So, when Paul talks about us being worshipers in the Spirit, those who worship in the Spirit. I think what he's talking about are those who, uh, people whose, uh, who, whose worship is energized by the Holy Spirit, who have come together to even to bear the fruit of the Spirit together. This is something that the mutilation can't do. Only the true people of God can do it because only the true people of God have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them and among them. So, Paul says that the first mark of Christian identity is that we are those who worship in the Spirit of God. So what kind of questions could we ask to help guide, guide us as we evaluate our own hearts? Do I worship as a, a living sacrifice in that Romans 12, 1 sense? Do I worship in the Spirit of God? How could we evaluate uh, Cornerstone Bible Church? When we gather together, are we worshiping in the Spirit of God? How about this? The, uh, really, just one simple question. Do we bear the fruit of the Spirit? I, I, I mentioned it just a moment ago. Does the worship that we, we do in our lives, and by that I'm talking about interacting with God through his word and prayer and then seeking to follow Jesus in each step of the day that we, that we live, 
um, walking in the spirit, as Paul might say? Am I doing that such that the fruit of the spirit is beginning to show up in my life? What about the corporate worship of the church? When we gather together, does it tend to help us develop love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? Does our gathering make us kinder people? Faithfulness, self-control, I've found that if I quote the fruit of the Spirit slowly, the more slow I go, the more convicting it is because I have to stop and think about each one. We don't think about peace very much. Patience as a fruit of the Spirit. Those who are worshiping in the Spirit of God are going to be bearing the fruit of that spirit, aren't they? So, the people who are God's, who are true worshipers, who are the God's true people, are worshipers, those who worship in the spirit of God. So I encourage you, as you look for a pastor, look for one whose overriding concern is to lead a worshiping people. Ask him the question, are you a worshiper? Now, of course, he's going to say yes. But what does that mean? Are you a worshiper? How does that show up in your life? We're to be, we want to be worshipers, those who worship in the Spirit of God. How will you lead us in that direction? So, look for a pastor who is a worshiper and whose overriding concern is to lead a worshiping people. The second mark of Christian identity is found in the next part of verse 3, Philippians 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know how many of you have used the word glory, especially as a verb, in a conversation this week. Um, You know, I'm really glorying in this cup of coffee. We don't connect, at least I don't, connect so well conversationally with the word glory. What does it mean to glory in Christ Jesus? Well, I think the best term to put in there, best English word to put in there is boast. Those who boast in Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, the word glory, because it has such religious overtones, I think kind of blurs the issue a little bit. It's the word for bragging. It's the word for bragging. It's like what I did you know, when my daughter sang the national anthem at the high school basketball game a few weeks ago. It's like, that's my girl. Okay? I'm bragging on her a little bit. Hopefully that was okay. Wasn't personally proud. I didn't give her that voice. But that's what the word means. To glory in Christ Jesus means to boast. Well, once we understand that... We can, now we've got a whole theme in Paul. This is a sermon in itself right here, folks. What does it mean to boast according to Paul? Now, the word boast sometimes uh, for Paul means more to rejoice. Uh, Like in Romans 5, where he says, we rejoice in hope, verse 2. Verse 3 of chapter 
5 in Romans, he says we rejoice or boast in sufferings. We boast in God, verse 11. He uses that term boast several time, times in uh, Romans 5. And there it, it has more of the idea of, of rejoicing. But most of the time, Paul uses the word boast in the way that we understand bragging. He talks about boasting in man, and that's bad. We have no basis for boasting before the Lord. In 2 Corinthians, there's this whole section from chapter 10 to chapter 12 where Paul says, you know, the people were doubting whether he was really qualified. It's like, are you really an apostle? You're kind of a latecomer to the party here. And, uh, you know, people have raised doubts in our minds. So Paul is forced to defend his apostleship. And he keeps saying, you're forcing me to boast. I don't want to do this, but you're forcing me to do it. I have to demonstrate to you that I'm an apostle. And you notice that his tactic, especially in chapter 10, is to boast in all the hardships that he's been through. Not to boast in congregations of thousands of people, but to boast in how much he has suffered for the sake of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, his, his attitude toward human boasting is really crystallized in just one verse. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Anything good in your life is a gift, people. So why do you act as if you deserve it or as if somehow you earned it or, or, or sort of uh, acquired it for yourself, he says, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Whatever you have has been given to you. So don't boast as if that's not the case. That's, a, that's Paul's attitude toward boasting. But he goes on and talks a lot about boasting. He even does it himself. So it's obviously not the idea of boasting in my own accomplishments or boasting in myself. It's always boasting in Christ or boasting in God. That's the good kind of boasting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, turn there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We get a, a nice little snapshot of boasting in God, according to Paul. And in order to get the context, we have to actually start at verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Look at verse 30. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And there he's quoting, as it is written, he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 9. Right? Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the mighty man boast in his strength. Not, let, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who does justice and righteousness and faithfulness in the earth. Boasting, Old or New Testament, is to be boasting in the Lord. So, 
God has chosen what is weak in the world. He has chosen what is not noble. He has chosen a cross, a cruel death to exalt a gracious Savior. So boasting for Paul must be boasting in Christ because I got nothing to boast about. Once I see myself clearly in light of who I am before God, I realize I've got nothing to boast about. So, more specifically, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, I will boast in the cross. He says, may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. Paul says, as someone who's been redeemed by Jesus Christ, I can't find anything in the world to boast about. I can't find anything in myself to boast about because my attachment to the world has been broken by the cross. I have been crucified with Christ. So it's not me who is alive anymore. It's Christ who is living in me. So if there's anything good coming out of me, it's not me, but it's Christ in me. And so in the end, Paul turns boasting about himself into an opportunity to boast about Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul begs God to relieve him of his thorn in the flesh, whatever that was. And the Lord says to him, no, I'm not going to take it away, but instead I'm going to give you my grace, which is enough. Because when I give you my grace, my power is demonstrated, perfected in your weakness. And so what does Paul say? In uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, he says, therefore I will boast all the more. There's it, there it is, boast. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. So his attitude is, the only parts of me that I can boast about are the weaknesses because it's in my weaknesses that Jesus becomes visible in me. So, this is what Paul has in mind. This is what's in the background of Philippians 3, verse 3, when he says that the, God's people, the true people of God, are those who boast in Christ Jesus. That defines us. That's, that's a mark of who we are. People should recognize us as those who belong to Jesus Christ because he's the one that we tend to brag about. We can't shut up talking about our Savior because he's the goodness in our lives and anything good that I have is just a result of his mercy. And so I want to boast in him. One commentator writing on this passage said, our boasting is not in ourselves, which is the essence of sin, but in another 
whose arm alone has brought salvation and on whom we rest in utter confidence and self-distrust. It is an attitude which deflates pride, especially in our religious virtues and attainments, and exalts the sovereign grace of God and his matchless gift on which we have no claim. The true people of God are those who boast only in Christ Jesus. You see how that fits right together with worship, with the previous uh, mark of identity, the previous qualification? We're the ones who worship in the Spirit of God. If you are worshiping in the Spirit of God, your thoughts and your your, your life as a whole is consumed with the person of Jesus Christ. And so his goodness just flows through you. And you boast in him, not in yourselves. Does that color your worship gathering at Cornerstone Bible Church? Is that, could people come in here and say, those people really have a thing for Jesus? Because when, when you gather together, you boast in him. I'm encouraged that we have done just that in these last two services that I've been able to participate in with you. Our rejoicing must be, our boasting must be in Jesus and not in ourselves. So, look for a pastor who will lead you to boast in Christ. One who is consumed with the person of Jesus Christ and will lead you to be like that. Will lead you always to the glories of the Son of God. The third mark of Christian identity is very closely related to that second one. Paul says that true believers are those who put no confidence in the flesh. True, the true people of God glory in Christ Jesus, boast in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. You see how closely they're related? If I see that anything good in my life is a result of God's grace through Jesus, and I boast in Jesus Christ then I realize I have nothing to brag about in myself and I'm not putting any confidence in myself. And of course, you see this against the the backdrop of, of the situation. In Philippi, the Judaizers had come in and said, listen, if all you have is faith in Jesus Christ, eh, you're on shaky ground here. You're on thin ice. You also need to keep the law. You need to be circumcised and follow the law as well. Paul says, no, you don't put confidence in the flesh. And I think that's an allusion to circumcision there. Not just the you know, works that we do to try to, to please God. He's talking about following the law. The NET translation, the Net Bible, translates this as those who do not rely on human credentials. That's a really good translation. But put no confidence in the flesh. I don't rely on human credentials. Confidence for Paul is an interesting study, and we're not going to take the time now. Look at, at sometimes, sometime when you've got a little time, chase the idea of confidence and certainty around through, through Paul's epistles. Paul is a guy who was very sure of certain things. He wasn't sure of himself. Boy, that Paul guy is really sure of himself. No, that didn't, that didn't characterize him at all. He was a very confident man, but he was confident in the person of Jesus Christ. He believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be and therefore would bring about what he promised to bring about. 
right? Um, that, that he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. He was confident of that in Philippians. Uh, he says to Timothy, I'm not ashamed of where I am now in prison for the sake of the gospel because I know whom I've believed. I know whom I believed, and I am confident, I'm convinced that he will keep what he has entrusted to me until he is done with me, until the day. So Paul was a very confident guy, but his confidence was not in himself, and that's really what this text is about. Against the backdrop of the Judaizers, he says, listen, if, you, if someone wants to talk about confidence in the flesh, I'm at the head of the line. And he re- goes through this whole list of, of qualifications in verses 4 through 6. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew child of Hebrew parents. That's what Hebrew of Hebrews means. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. I was up there with the religious elite, he says. But all of that stuff was worse than nothing before God. I had to learn to see all of those human credentials as dung in the presence of a holy God. Because I was trusting in myself. I was trusting in those works. But it's faith in Jesus the Messiah and seeing myself for who I really am that brings me into a right relationship with God. So he says the true people of God are those who put no confidence in the flesh. At the individual level, he's talking about coming before God and saying, I have nothing to offer. I need your mercy. And apart from your mercy, I'm completely lost. There's nothing. Heredity, personal morality, zeal for the scriptures, attendance at a good church, whatever... Whatever it is that you think qualifies you as religious or good before God, there's nothing that will bring you to a right relationship with God. Only what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. But is there a corporate dimension to this as well? Remember, worship sort of overshadows this text. Is there a corporate dimension to this as well? I think there is, especially in our culture and especially in this little corner of our culture where entertainment is what dominates life. Churches also tend to be dominated by a mindset that we gather together in order to be pleased or impressed by music, by preaching, by whatever. And it's got this very human sort of entertainment theme running underneath of it. And I think sometimes we don't even realize it. We'll say things like, we want to have an excellent service because God is pleased with excellence. We want to have a, a welcoming atmosphere because, uh, because we want people to like coming here. But all of this can be a a theological smokescreen for pride and for the assumption that people are worshiping if they're enjoying themselves. 
We're not those who enjoy ourselves in the Spirit of God. We are those who worship in the Spirit of God. And as such, our confidence must be placed together in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who binds us together and brings us to the Father. In a very real sense, Jesus is our worship leader. That's another sermon for another day. But we're, we're bound together by Jesus Christ, not by the program that we offer on Sunday morning. And of course, Sunday morning worship is a program. It has to be because we've all gathered together to do the same thing at the same time. So that means we have to have leaders and we have to have coordinated events and everything. But in our culture, you see how easily that shades into entertainment and the, and the, the false sense of, of success that comes when people leave the place having enjoyed themselves. Okay, but did they worship? Are we putting our confidence in our ability to put on a good program or is our confidence in Jesus Christ, the one who constitutes us as the people of God? I heard uh, Dr. MacArthur say once uh, that if, speaking to pastors, you know, if, if your services are about entertaining unbelievers, you are prostituting your ministry. And I thought, yeah, that's true. But you know what? It's also true that if your services are geared toward entertaining believers, you're prostituting your ministry. Because we're not here to be entertained. We're here to worship God. Now, I hope that that's enjoyable. I hope that we love to come together and we leave encouraged because we have encountered the true God by his spirit with our people and we have been cleansed and renewed in, uh, his, in, in our commitment to Jesus Christ and in what he has done for us and submitted ourselves to the scriptures together. And I hope that we leave encouraged because of that. But you see how, how we so easily confuse that with entertainment? So, in the pastoral search process, beware of putting an emphasis on externals. On all of those things that draw a crowd and cause them to enjoy themselves. You need a man who will teach you and lead by example to worship in the Spirit of God, to boast only in Jesus Christ, and to put no confidence in the flesh in any way. Someone who will lead you together and say with the old hymn writer, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So God's true people are identifiable, at least in part, by these three things. We worship in the Spirit of God. We are the people who boast only in Jesus Christ and not in ourselves. And we place no confidence in the flesh. I pray that God will do that work here at Cornerstone Bible Church as he has done up until now. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you tell us the truth about ourselves. That we can come to you and we can look in the mirror of your word and see ourselves clearly. And see 
your grace in Jesus Christ that brings us from the sorry state that we're in and draws us to your throne of grace. Thank you for the good work that you are doing among this assembly of your people. I pray that by your spirit, you would continue to grow them as those who worship in your spirit, boast in your son, and put no confidence in themselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.